take a three-day, 9 to 12, written comprehensive examination in order to get your bachelor's degree. So I was preparing for my, my uh, exams for my bachelor's degree. Um, I would um, pass that degree, thankfully, and that summer I went to Quebec and in the fall, I entered the novitiate for my, the religious community. I was a member of, back then, the Congregation of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, a missionary community. Um, what I recall about March the 3rd, and the reason I bring it up in particular, is because the Washington Post had news about the launch of the, prime, uh, the Pioneer Space Probe. And because, at the request of Carl Sagan... It carried a small gold anodized aluminum plaque that had engravings on it. It was two human beings, two figures, a male and female, and then a series of mathematical and astrophysical symbols. Does anyone know anything about astrophysics or physics? Anyone here? Good, I can talk all I want about it then. <laughs> and you'll think I'm intelligent. It carried, uh, one of the symbols was the, the hyperfine transition of neutral hydrogen, which involves a change in the relative spins of protons and electrons, and this is how, this is how they locate pulsar stars. Because the map also identified 14 pulsar stars in the Milky Way uh, relative to our Sun and the Earth, and it had a line showing the Earth's position relative to the center of the galaxy, the, the Milky Way. And then below all of that was a, a vertical line representing, representing the binary digit 1. Then it showed um, a diagram of the solar system with all our planets and the trajectory of the Pioneer 10 with a little line coming out of Earth and going into space. Um, and finally, a silhouette of the spacecraft itself was engraved on the plaque. This was not a memorial plaque. Its purpose, as you may know or might figure out for yourselves, was to communicate something about ourselves to the cosmos, uh, the, chem the chemical composition of our planet, uh, the nature of the race that inhabited it. And the hope was that at some point in, in history, because the, um, the Pioneer 10 is now completely outside our solar system, it's something like 4 billion miles away, maybe, maybe further than that. It's way out in deep space, uh, further than any man has ever gone before, except, um, except in uh, Star Trek movies. Uh, it, um, it, it, the hope was, Carl Sagan's hope was, that at some point, this spacecraft would float by a planet occupied by intelligent people and they would find it or snag it or it would crash land on their planet and they, uh, would, and they would be somewhere near our own zip code, by the way, uh, a civilization who would be able to read that plaque and like an interstellar road map, look us up and maybe drop by someday for coffee and Krispy Kremes. Most of the seminarians that I studied with, there were about 30 of them, thought that this was the greatest idea imaginable. Uh, it was like putting a porch light on and letting the universe know someone was home. And, but I was not so sure. It's a little bit like someone who leaves the porch light on and the front door unlocked just in case the neighbors might want to drop in. In fact, it's even worse than that. It's like taking the front door off the hinges completely and then painting arrows in the street leading up to the front door and inviting anyone to come right into your kitchen and help themselves. It's mighty neighborly. Um, but the problem is your neighbors might not want to be neighbor to you. Uh, Carl Sagan might be accused of being a cosmic optimist at best or maybe a galactic pessimist at worst. Not every advanced civilization, if in fact they're out there, is likely to take a kindly attitude to us. I'm just saying. But I digress now. For, for argument's sake, let's imagine the, um, the alternative scenario. All of this inverted the other way around. Not some alien civilization finding a message from us, but a space probe from an alien civilization from way beyond the Milky Way landing on planet Earth. 
Um, not unlike the 50s movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still, minus Klaatu and his robot Gort. Um, the spacecraft contains all the information we need to know about this, the sender of this craft, this information, and their relative attitude toward the human beings who live on and inhabit this planet. So, we could expect that astrophysicists and scientists of all kinds, anthropologists, sociologists, philosophers, and hopefully maybe even a few theologians would be able to sit around together and unpack the information, trying to understand what this craft is, where did it come from, what it means for the people on this planet, and how might it understand, uh, change our understanding about the universe and even more important, or perhaps equally important, how it might change our own understanding of ourselves and who we are. And that would put an end to the Earth's five billion years of solitude. This may sound like science fiction, but in fact, something like this has already happened. We received a communication, in fact, we received a series of communications, not merely from outside our solar system, but completely outside our galaxy, um, and someplace even more remote, uh, outside the entire cosmos. That information began arriving somewhere around 3,000 years ago, and the origin of it was not an alien civilization, but, uh, but something even more mysterious than that, something completely outside uh, any frame of reference we could possibly have uh, or that we could ever imagine. The source is not something that can be mapped on a grid of any being, and that makes it completely alien from anything we could know or hope to know or understand. I'm speaking, of course, about the Trinitarian God who, as we already know, created the world and everything that is in it. Uh, this Trinitarian God is completely transcendent, outside time, outside the created universe, outside of and beyond any attempt by the human mind to understand it. Though, an attempt to understand it is always in the making. We typically think of God as a being, capital B, sharing existence with other beings, small b, you and I, within the created cosmos. And I have a perfect example of how someone might think that. I mean, we might think that that sounds odd, but that's actually uh, quite a common understanding. And here's a, a perfect illustration of how it is a common understanding. Do you all remember Yuri Alexeyevich Gagarin? Is the name? Yes, some of you do. Uh, Yuri Alexeyevich Gagarin was a Soviet cosmonaut. He was the first human being in space. He landed back on Earth back in April of 1961. And while he was up there, he is reported to have said that he saw no God out there. Um, now, when C.S. Lewis, whom you're all familiar with, I'm sure, when C.S. Lewis heard that Gagarin had said this, his response was that this was like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle looking for Shakespeare. So, so uh, let's begin with this mysterious communication from afar. It begins with a decision on the part of the triune God to push restart on God's project to restore his creation after the fall of our parents. And to accomplish this task, God chose an individual in the Middle East who would be the father of a completely new humanity. That individual's name, of course, was Abraham, and we all know the story about how he left Ur of the Chaldees and sojourned in the land of Canaan, how God made a covenant with him and gave him the land in his old age, provided him and his wife, Sarah, who were in their 80s or 90s with an heir, and how the elderly couple laughed at the thought that Medicare would pay for the diaper bills. This God will eventually reveal his name to Moses as YHWH. It's, the, the, it's called the Tetragrammaton. It's derived from the Hebrew ber, verb that means to be, to exist, to cause, to become, to come to pass, and which we translate as I am who am, and you will hear this on Good Friday at the, um, the Gospel when 
they come to arrest Jesus in the garden and Jesus will say, I am, and they will all fall on their knees. Why? Because what Jesus is saying is that he participates in the Godhead, Y-H-W-H. Um, and on Mount Sinai, God will give Moses the Torah, the law, which will be descriptive, a descriptive plan for the new humanity that God is bringing about. That plan will take firm root in God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that a Messiah would come from his house. Now, we're all Catholics here, uh, and we form part of a belief system, a worldview called Christianity, and Christians believe that this promise has been fulfilled in Christ himself. So the story of the Old Testament, we might be able to say, is a drama in four acts. Act 1, creation. Act 2, fall. Act 3, Israel. Act 4, Jesus. And the New Testament is the first scene of a new act, Act 5, that gives us all the plot twists we need to know how the play is going to end. And that ending is previewed for us in the book of Revelation. So we should not underestimate the enormity of the claim that we in the church make for the Gospels, that the creator of the universe chose to live as a first century Jew growing up in a tiny village in small backwater province of the Roman Empire. Uh, what I've described, uh, and this is very brief, uh, we could probably spend a lot more time on it, but what I've described is the long arc of what is called salvation history, what Irenaeus, and one of these days we hope to talk about Irenaeus, what Irenaeus will describe as the divine economy. The economy is not what we know as economy today. It is the way in it, oikos, it comes from the Greek word oikos, which means a house, and a oikodespotes in Greek is the master of the house, and in this case, the house is the universe, and the oikodespotes happens to be God. And, uh, and an oikodespotes, a master, has an economia. He arranges his house, just like you do, in certain ways. You have your sofa in front of your television set. You don't put your refrigerator in front of your television set because then you can't see to eat or eat to see. Uh, you, uh, you don't put your, your bed in the bathroom. You, you arrange your house in a proper way and you keep it arranged that way. Otherwise, when you get up in the middle of the night to get a, a, a glass of water, you break your leg when you stumble. Um, but uh, you know, an, an, an oikodespotes also arranges his economia, the ways in which uh, he makes sure he has enough money to pay for bills, enough money coming in, more coming in than going out, etc., etc., etc. Irenaeus, the great church father, the first great systematic theologian of the church, um, it will use this notion of economia to describe the entire economy, the way God has arranged the entire cosmos and the whole plan of creation for the goal of Jesus Christ and then for the coming down of the new Jerusalem from heaven. Because, because um, biblical faith, Catholic faith, talks about the resurrection of our bodies, not just the body of Christ. That's very important. It is a new earth that is created. We don't die, go to heaven, and float on clouds singing, um, singing nice songs and playing harps for all eternity. There will be the renewal of the whole earth once again. And guess what? We get our bodies back, except that it, now, after the resurrection of the just at the end of the world, uh, we can eat all the pizza and, uh, and the chocolates, the Fannie Mae's that we want, and we never get fat, and we never have to take our blood for those who are diabetics. Um, so, um, so this is the history of salvation, the story of Israel narrated in the Old Testament. But unlike our Pioneer 10 space probe, when God finally chose to communicate his ultimate message to us, he didn't do it through a robotic machine. He did it through a human being like ourselves, but with a difference. A man in all things, but sinless. But also at the same time, not merely a man, but the incarnate Logos, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. So the incarnation was rather like, in a sense, ripping off the doors of the house, painting arrows in the street, and inviting anyone who wanted to meet Israel's God face to face 
to come in, sit down, and have a chat. And this was as risky a proposition to send into the depths of space on a, uh, as, as it is to send into the depths of space a, a map on how to find the planet Earth where any intelligent civilization might consider it an invitation to drop by for afternoon tea and perhaps a colony. So it was a risky business to send the eternal Logos into the world because there is a Yiddish proverb that says, if God lived on Earth, all his windows would be broken. Why? You break windows for people who uh, have harmed you or in some way whatsoever. And so the Yiddish proverb is that the, um, the weight of responsibility for evil, sin, and death and suffering in the world belong in God's lap. So let's break his windows. Except that when he became a human being and lived among us, we did more than break his windows. We nailed him to a cross. So this is the place where Catholic theology begins. It begins right here. Um, we nailed him to a cross. Um, and the mystery of the cross is the focus of our redemption. And the key that helps us open up the mystery of the cross is the voluntary nature of Christ's execution. Paul said it in Galatians 1.4. He said, He gave himself up for our sins that he might rescue us from the present evil age. And that word, uh, he gave himself up, is the, or, or he was delivered, or he gave himself up unto, is the beginning of all Christian theology. He wasn't just taken. He wasn't the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time. The crucified Christ, in effect, reveals the length to which God will go to show his love for his creatures. But when the dead and bleeding body of Christ was taken down from the cross, the story uh, had only just begun. That story is, of course, told by the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in their Gospels. And Luke, as I've said before, you've heard me perhaps say, Luke wrote two Gospels. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he wrote a second Gospel called Acts. Uh, we don't consider it Evangelion, but it is good news. Um, we should probably call it the gospel of the church. And then there are the epistles of Paul and the Catholic epistles, James 1 and 2, Peter 1 and 2, John uh, 2, John 3, Jude. And then finally, there is the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. The New Testament writings are not merely history or biography, but they are that to some extent or another. They aren't just, they aren't just fairy tales. But they are also theological reflections on the meaning of salvation history from Genesis to the New Testament. And together with that, because the story of Israel is, in fact, inseparable from the story of Jesus. You cannot tell the story of Jesus apart from the story of Israel. And uh, we will end up talking about this as we go through the Apostolic Fathers, and we'll understand why that is. That the meaning of Christ as the final and definitive revelation of God's will for human beings is found there. Christ is the pattern for a new humanity, and that pattern is brought to fulfillment by the Spirit-filled Church. So everything we need to know about God, that God is triunity, that as Evagrius will say, non-numeric trinity, everything we need to know about God's will for us is revealed by Christ in the Gospels through the Church. This is called the Depositum Fidei, the deposit of faith. It is the body of saving truth entrusted by Christ to the apostles and handed on by them in their teaching and preaching, which we call the sacred tradition, to be preserved and proclaimed until the end of time. So the metaphor of a deposit suggests that this teaching is an inexhaustible treasure that rewards reflection and study with new insights and deeper penetration into the mystery of the divine economy, God's plan for our salvation. Although the church's understanding of this teaching can and does develop, it can never be augmented in substance. Am I going too fast for you? If I am, just please break with the north. Okay, fine, I'll continue as I go. These two concepts, the deposit of faith, and second, the Holy Spirit indwelling in the church, 
are important for understanding how the church develops and grows under the Spirit's inspiration. It's something that we will want to come back to to help us understand how Catholic doctrine, the sacraments, uh, the structure of the church can develop and become um, more and more uh, more detailed and explicit over the centuries while, while remaining faithful and consistent with the deposit of faith. So, uh, and, and mind you, here's the thing. Every time a pope travels somewhere, and NBC, ABC, CBS, uh, or any of the, show, any of the um, media cover the story, they always cover it from this perspective. Oh, we have a new pope. Um, he seems kind of liberal. He seems kind of square. But we'll, maybe he'll change uh, doctor, the church's doctrines on this or the church's doctrines on that. Popes can't change church doctrine. It, they can't do it. Um, they can change church discipline. A pope might be able to say that a priest can be married because that's not doctrinal. That's disciplinary. But they can't say, for example, that it's okay to get an abortion. They, they can't change that. Um, there are certain things popes cannot do, and the deposit of faith is they can't fool around with the deposit of faith. That's God's deposit of truth and revelation, which we recite in the Creed. So the apostolic witness, their preaching and teaching handed on, another word we could use is tradition, because Paul uses that paradoesis, uh, the Greek word means simply to hand on to someone, paradeesis. It means to tradition. Uh, tradition to the churches they founded is crucial to our understanding of the faith because they were all eyewitnesses to everything that Jesus did and said. Take out the, apost the apostolic witness and our faith is built on no eyewitnesses to anything. And that's, that's well, that would be faith, but it, that, that would be faith in a whole different key, a, a minor key. But the apostolic age comes to a close with the death of the Apostle John, probably somewhere around the 95 or so. But their disciples, the disciples of the apostles, continued the process of theological reflection on the good news revealed through Christ. And these writers, in the years between 100 and 200 A.D., are known as the Apostolic Fathers for their close connection to the Apostles themselves. And some of them, in fact, knew the Apostles and tell us that they knew them. They include Clement of Rome, Bishop of Rome, Pope, uh, in around the year 1996, uh, 1996, but 96 AD, Ignatius of Antioch, the year 110, Polycarp of Smyrna, 155, Polycarp knew John. He tells us he knew John. He talks about him. They met. Um, Justin Martyr in 165. Justin Martyr was born in a little village not far from what is today Hebron in Israel. And Hebron is not far from a little village where there is a well. It's right on the slopes of uh, the Mount Samaria where the old capital of northern. And anyone happen to know what the significance of that little well is about? Exactly. We'll hear about it uh, next Sunday. Uh, is, it the th is it next Sunday or the... It's first scrutiny. So he was... Justin was born there. But his father was probably a veteran in the campaign against... in the, in the first Jewish war probably one of the soldiers that broke, uh, that uh, stormed into Jerusalem and took the city. And they were uh, Titus, uh, uh, they, were, they were settled in the land, and that's where Justin grew up. And Justin grew up and never even heard of Christ uh, or the Gospels at all. And the story of his coming to faith around the year 140 is a fascinating story, which we'll talk about when we study Justin, if we make it that far. Um, and then there are a number of anonymous writings. There is the Didache, which I have copies here for you. The Didache is fascinating, not only for its history, because it disappeared for almost um, 1,800 years, but uh, because 
It's a writing that goes back somewhere between 50 and 70 A.D. If, it, if it's 50 and, between 50 and 70 A.D., which almost everyone assumes it is, those who've studied it, that means it's contemporaneous with 50, the letters of Paul, and 70, the Gospel of Luke, and also the writing of Mark, and perhaps... Uh, Matthew. It's, it's a parallel document from that whole era, era of the church. The Shepherd of Hermas in 100, between 1 and 160, the Letter of Barnabas in 70, Papias of Hierapolis in 70 to 163, and the Epistle to Diognesus in 130. And hopefully we'll take a look at some of these. Um, let me take a, a moment to breathe here. Um, I've said all of that on one breath. So let's take a look uh, for a moment at the times that shaped the apostolic fathers, because this is, this is very helpful to understand. And there, there are two things that help shape the writings of the apostolic fathers. First is persecution, and the second is heresy. Uh, at the time the apostolic fathers lived and worked, the church began slowly expanding through the Roman Empire and, and even beyond. But this expansion did not take place without significant pushback from the empire. Those of you who know about the, how the empire strikes back. Christians were viewed with skepticism, suspicion, and hostility by their pagan neighbors because they refused to participate in the public cult, especially emperor worship. Uh, it, it would be like us refusing to stand for the national anthem or refusing to put our hand over our heart and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, if we did that, if we, if we sat uh, at a baseball game when everyone stands and sings the anthem, uh, people will look at you and think that you're being very unpatriotic. Um, and Christians were thought to be unpatriotic to a more serious degree because the stability and prosperity of the empire required adherence to the state religion and its sacrificial system. So the refusal to participate in state religion threatened the stability of the entire empire, the commonweal. And this is why Christians were seen as atheists and morally corrupt. There's a wonderful scene in the... Um, there was an eyewitness to the martyrdom of St. Polycarp. Polycarp was burned to death in Smyrna. Not a very pleasant way to go, but when he was brought into the arena before the, um, before the praetors, the judges, the, um, uh, and they were all, they filled the arena with all these uh, pagans. And um, the judge said to Polycarp, denounce the atheists. And of course, Polycarp had a kind of interesting sense of humor. He waved his hand at the people gathered around and said, I denounce the atheists. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a fascinating glimpse showing how Christians were viewed by Roman officialdom in Pliny's letter to the Emperor Trajan. This letter was written about 110. Um, Pliny was a civil servant who served as the governor of Bithynia. It sounds like a foot disease, but it's actually a province of Rome in north of Asia Minor, uh, which is today Turkey. It's on the coast of the Black Sea. And here, Pliny met Christians for the first time, but he wasn't sure how they should be dealt with. So he wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan and reported what he had done so far. And so, like every good bureaucrat, he wanted to know if there was any, any information about how we should treat them, bureaucratic, bureaucratic rules and regulations for putting Christians to death. Now, this is the earliest internal document showing the Roman Empire's attitude and its policy toward the church. Moreover, um, Pliny does historians and liturgists a great favor because he describes what he discovered about the way Christians worshipped. It's one of the, uh, next to Paul's letter and next to um, the Didache and a few other things, it's one of the oldest descriptions of Christian worship at this time through the eyes of a pagan. Um, so this bit of political correspondence, though uh, very, of very little importance in the political history of Rome is very important for what it tells 
about the way pagans viewed their Christian neighbors. So this is what this is the letter uh, that he wrote. He said, uh, "I've never before participated in trials of Christians, so I don't know what offenses are to be punished or investigated or to what extent." In the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, this is uh, the procedure I followed. I interrogated them as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and third time, in parentheses, with torture. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness, and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. They were, um, they, there were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. Most likely, most likely what he's talking about are slaves, and slaves had no legal standing in the Roman Empire. You could do whatever you wanted to a slave. Or it also might be that they were freemen, free, uh, uh, not slaves, but, uh, and not uh, citizens of Rome like Paul the Apostle. And so uh, he, didn't, or he, didn't have the, um, he didn't have the right to um, put them to death. I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you. For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, rank, also of both sexes, are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. It seems possible to check it and cure it. This is amazing. Christianity is not merely in the big cities. It's already spreading out into the countryside, to the farms, right? That, it's 110 A.D. That is what, um, let's say, Christ is uh, crucified and rises around 29 A.D. What's the difference between 29 and 110? 70 some years? 81 years. Um, and so Trajan writes back and he says to Pliny, You observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in shifting the cases of those who had been denounced to you as Christians, for it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proved guilty of being Christian, they ought to be punished with this reservation that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is, worshipping our gods, little pinch of incense on the coals, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon and repentance. But anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution, for this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. So that tells us one important thing. Anonymous prosecution of Christians. So, someone is suspected of being a Christian, uh, you or you or any one of us, and your neighbors suspect you, they see you sneaking out of your house at 3 o'clock in the morning. Why do normal people sneak out of their house at 3 o'clock on Sunday morning? Uh, where are they off to? They're off to the catacombs because there is no such thing as Sunday in El Mundo Pagano. Uh, it's just one other day of the week and the Christians are keeping holy Sundays and they're sneaking out early because they're going to celebrate Eucharist. In Rome, they celebrated outside of the cities in the catacombs. But probably in large cities where there were no catacombs, house churches, wherever, they could, wherever Christians could gather. And so this raises suspicions on the part of nosy parkers, and every city has at least a dozen of them looking out their windows, wondering what their neighbors are up to, right? And then tattling on them to the Roman authorities. Oh, um, Rosie over here, I think she's a Christian, but keep my name out of it. Boom, she gets arrested, hauled in, tortured, interrogated, put to death. End of story. And Trajan doesn't want that. He wants, if the Romans are going to put people to death, it's got to be done legally. Um, they, uh, so persecution, both systematic state-sponsored violence, beginning with Nero in 64, and continuing off and on until the great persecution of Diocletian, which in Diocletian's persecution was an attempt to decapitate the church. They focused on the bishops, the clergy especially. Um, that ended around 311, and sporadic local violence had a major impact on the apostolic fathers. 
And this accounts for the large number of apologists among the fathers. Uh, these apologies are often addressed to the empire, emperor or the Roman state, but they appeal for toleration on the basis that the church poses no threat to the imperial system. So basically would say, why don't you just leave us alone? We won't hurt you. We're not going to worship the emperor. We're not going to put incense on the coals. We're not going to show up at the, at the temple of Janus on the 1st of January to worship. Uh, but, but we're not going to be um, insidious in any way. Um, the second major influence are the heretical movements, and nowadays we call them alternative Christianities, for those of you who read any of these um, things, like Elaine Pagel. So here is a short bestiary of heretical teachings that the early fathers had to address. Um, an, early, an early heresy called Ebionitism. Uh, the word comes from the Hebrew uh, Evonim, which means the poor ones. They were Jews who insisted on the necessity of following the Jewish law, uh, and they regarded Jesus as the Messiah, but they did not believe that he was divine. Docetism, from the Greek word dokeo. Dokeo means to seem. Uh, dokeo me, it seems to me, a Greek would say. Uh, this is the belief that Jesus' physical body was really an illusion. And so was his crucifixion. That is, Jesus only seemed to have a physical body, and he seemed physically to die, but in reality, he was incorporeal. He was a pure spirit, and hence could not physically die. And in some Docetist teaching on Good Friday, Jesus tricks Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. He tricks him. Uh, and Simon Cyrene ends up crucified in Jesus' place, and Jesus stands below the cross laughing at Simon because he gets to pull a trick on him in this way. This is Docetism. Um, Gnosticism. Gnostics believed that the created world was bad and that it was made by a lesser God distinct from whom they called the unknowable Father. They believed that there was an element of divine seed in each one of us and that divinity wants to join again with the good God they also believed that people could be saved by some kind of secret knowledge. Some thought that it didn't matter what people did in life, since the body was not eternal, so you could do whatever you wanted. Uh, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. While Christians thought Jesus was both human and divine, Gnostics thought he was only divine, but appeared human, like the um, Docetists. There were all kinds of Gnostic schools uh, we're working through, um, in the studium with the students, uh, we're working through Irenaeus, who writes around 170. He has a book about that thick, not quite 700 pages, and he goes on and on and on about the Gnostic systems. And lest you think for a moment that Gnosticism is dead, I, uh, I, have, um, I have news for you. Um, there were different schools, Valentinianism, the Ophites, the Ophites believed that the spirit, uh, the serpent in the garden was actually the hero of the story, like Severus Snape. Uh, Sethians uh, believed that the snake was actually the agent of God. Then Marcion. Marcion, from Pontus in Asia Minor, he, he ends up in Rome about 144. He was a wealthy shipbuilder. Um, not, not a real estate mogul, but just a wealthy shipbuilder. Um, his father was the bishop of Sinope. Uh, the god he taught that the god of the Old Testament was an evil god of wrath, a god of vengeance, the one who created the world. And the god revealed by Jesus in the Gospels is a good and loving and merciful god. So he rejected the Old Testament completely. You don't need that. That's the book about the evil god, and he takes the New Testament and he only keeps parts of Luke and parts of Paul. Tertullian, the great African church father, said that when, when Marcion read the Gospels, he, he read it with a, pair of, with a knife in his hand, we would say a pair of scissors, and he snip-snip here, snip-snip there, uh, snip-nip all the day long, that's the way it goes in the merry old land of Oz, if you're a Marcionite. Um, Marcion denied the virgin birth. He said that Christ had emerged from heaven fully formed in 29 AD. 
and that he was the son of the good God and that the creator God, the God who made this universe, the evil God, didn't even know who he was. And Christ didn't have a normal physical body, but he was not a phantom and he still suffered. And the purpose of Christ's visit was to steal humankind or purchase them from the evil creator God for the good God with his blood. And this act displayed the innate goodness of the good God. Uh, Marcion did not allow marriage. It was viewed as a corruption because the creator God ordained it. A sex was prohibited because it engaged the sinful flesh. And as an additional bonus, Marcion believed that sexual abstention irritated the evil God. So um, if you wanted to irritate that bad God, this is what you do. Unfortunately, like the Shakers in the 19th century who uh, believed in sexual abstinence, this teaching had an enormous, enormous negative effect upon the movement's demographics. Um, Marcionites had special dietary restrictions. They weren't allowed to eat meat, uh, with the exception of fish, which would make me a very poor Marcionite. And they were not permitted to drink wine. Bummer there. Food intake was to be minimized alongside fasting, which uh, also conducted which also conducted to spite the evil god. So if you wanted to make the evil god angry, you fasted and you didn't drink wine. Uh, Sounds to me more like it would make most people angry rather than God. So Montanus, second century, he's the founder of something called Montanism, not to be uh, confused with um, Marcionism. He was also from northern Turkey. They were known as the New Prophecy Um, and they expected the imminent return of Christ. He was accompanied to Rome by two female prophets named Maximilla and Priscilla. Uh, And its most famous convert was a Roman theologian named Tertullian, who converted to Montanism in 207. He was the first important Latin theologian to write in the Latin language. Almost all the others that we read that we will read originally wrote in Greek. So, I will bring this to a conclusion in a second or two. What was at stake in the struggle between persecution from without and heresy with within? In other words, why were the Apostolic Fathers engaged in all of this? And, and uh, that's an easy question to answer. The first, the total destruction of the church. And the second, um, heresy from within. Um, what's at stake is our understanding of the nature of Christ and the meaning of salvation. Was he God or was he man? Or is he both God and man? Is he two persons in one or one person with two natures? Does he have a divine will or a human will? All these questions will be taken up by Nicaea and Constantinople too. Um, Also at stake was the canon of scripture. Um, If you watch televangelists on Sunday, I was in San Diego with the prior recently visiting uh, my brother and watched uh, some televangelists. Uh, they, They talk as though the Bible came down from heaven in a Moroccan leather-bound red-letter version. Uh, it just completely floated whole down in front of them. They, they can't grasp, for example, that the New Testament came together over a period of a number of years and that there were a lot of other books out there. What we will see is that the Didache was actually used and so was the letter of Barnabas used in the Alexandrian church. Why did we get the canon the way we got it? Because... The fathers recognized that the books that we have in the New Testament canon actually give us the true picture of Jesus Christ and that the other gospels out there, the other writings, give us a picture more appropriately related to some of the heresies that I'm talking about. The famous Gospel of Thomas, for example, that everyone gets ears about and so on. Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic gospel. It doesn't give us a picture of a crucified Lord at all. It just gives us sayings. Um, But the Jesus Seminar thinks that it should be classified with the other four, so we should have five Gospels, right? It doesn't go. So the canon of Scripture, the Trinitarian theology, and and also the nature of salvation. Are we saved in a body, or are we saved out of a body? How important are our bodies? Um, Are we saved in or out of the world? 
Uh, or are we saved by special knowledge? Do we have to get a, um, a degree from a pontifical university in order to be saved? Um, uh, is it salvation for a few or salvation for all? The nature of the church, what is it? Its development, its structure, organization, liturgical and sacramental system, the meaning of Christian worship and directed to whom. All of these are at stake when we come to study the Apostolic Fathers. And the Apostolic Fathers, particularly Irenaeus in the year 170, will bring all these things together. Irenaeus will bring them all together and he will, he will give us, define the meaning of the canon. He will define the meaning of apostolic succession. This bishop, this bishop has a very fascinating passage where he lists the bishops of Rome one after the other all the way up to Eleutherius in the year 200. Um, that's fascinating because what he's saying there is that we can rely upon these bishops because these bishops are the successors of the Apostle Peter. Right? Um, yeah, so we have the apostolic succession, we have apostolic tradition, and we have the canon. Um, and then we have the Christological teaching of the nature of Christ. So that brings me to my conclusion. Um, is um, We have maybe about five minutes if anyone wants to ask a question, but that's okay, don't feel like you need to. <laughs> okay then. Um, I have... Uh, Copies of the Didache, this is the complete text translated from the, the Greek. Uh, I will pass out to you. It's very short. Uh, it's, uh, it's 16 very short chapters. Um, uh, the interesting part is when around chapter 13 it begins to talk about the Eucharist and about the bishops. Now remember, this document is written somewhere between 50 and 70 A.D., very, very early on. And already, it's talking about baptism, it's talking about Eucharist, it's talking about bishops, it's talking about deacons. Uh, so that's a very interesting answer for those who like to pretend that the Catholic Church invented everything in the, re in the year 313 after Constantine legalized the Church. Not so. Um, one comment about um, the Gnostics. The Gnostics are very much alive and present in our culture today. What's a good example of a Gnostic group? Absolutely. Church of Scientology. Gnostic group. Uh, do you know anything about them? They believe that some evil creature, angel of some sort, inhabiting a volcano in prehistoric times was blown up and bits of this evil thing got blasted all over the cosmos and those little teeny bits glom onto us and create negative thoughts and negative emotions. And so if you go to the Church of Scientology and write out everything you've ever done, uh, like Tom Cruise did, that eventually you will be freed from all these negative uh, experiences and you will become an operating Thetan. Um, they are a religion without divinity. But they believe that you have to have specialized knowledge in order to find happiness and salvation. That's one. Church of uh, Christ Scientist is another. Mary Baker Eddy believed that uh, illness was just, just in your head. If you changed your way of thinking, you'd never get sick. So the next time you get the flu... Um, I, yes, we... I, 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 there was a guy in seminary who, who used to love to do this in D.C. Um, he, um, Barry Deal, his name was. He was a huge guy. We called him Big Deal. He, uh, he would go into Christian science reading rooms like this. And then he would sit down at a table and read uh, Mary Baker's Health Through Science reading. And he'd put the book away and say, hallelujah, and he'd walk. <laughs> there, is, um, there is the Gnostic Church, the Gnostic Catholic Church, uh, where else but Palo Alto, California. Um, there is the Eglise, 
uh, Gnostique Catholique de Saint Jean Evangelist, the Gnostic Catholic Church of Saint John the Evangelist, founded at the turn of this century by a former priest in France. But they have, uh, they have spun out into Gnostic churches in this country. So, Also, uh, the Docetists, or um, any one of a group of... Uh, or anyone of a group of uh, Christological heresies that does not believe that Jesus was a human being or does not believe that Jesus was divine. Um, I can't remember the names of them, but uh, you all know what prosperity gospel is, don't you? All right, you've probably seen some of their... We watched one of these, uh, I forget who his name was, Benny Hinn, I think his name was, in saying that he says, God wants you... In 2016, I, the Spirit has been placed in my heart. God wants you to... This is the best year you're ever going to have. You're going to be healthy. You're going to be wealthy. Everything is going to well for you. But you have to make your seed faith contribution. A dollar a day, every day, for the year 360 dollars will... You know, of course, Benny Hinn forgot that this is actually... This is actually a leap year. So if you, set, if you do send your $360 in, doesn't matter because it won't count. It's got to be $361. you have missed a day. Um, someone ought to inform him uh, because he's leading his, his, um, his viewers uh, down the primrose path. But if you believe in prosperity gospel that God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, then you can't believe in that because that does not look like success in anyone's book that I know of, that looks like human failure, right? That looks like failure. And so, what do they have to do? They have to change the faith about the church's faith, the orthodox faith, about who Jesus Christ is. If that is failure, that can't be success, and therefore, he can't be divine. He becomes divine only after the resurrection. In fact, the resurrection is God's plotchet on him. Thanks, by the way, for dying. For humanity, uh, I know you weren't divine, so can't really mean much. But nonetheless, here's your reward. I'll raise you from the dead, and I'll make you divine. That's what they believe. Jesus is not divine until he's risen from the dead. And some of them don't believe he's divine until after he ascends into heaven. That's called adoptionism. He's adopted by the Father as divine. That's another Christian heresy, uh, which we do not profess.